You're listening to the Young Baptist Podcast, a show that exists to call believers to committed faithfulness to God's Word, to equip Christians by answering the tough questions that need to be asked, and to challenge churches on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. Now, here's your hosts, Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. My name is Josh Johnson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Clay Maynard. We're two guys committed to the centrality of the gospel, and we want to see our brothers and sisters in Christ be captivated all over again by the beauty and glory of Christ. Good morning, Clay. What's up, Josh? How are you? I'm doing well this morning. Uh, It's a beautiful Saturday morning. Yeah, nice and early. Nice and early. Well, not anymore, but it was. It was when we got here. (laughs) Absolutely. We should have a good conversation because we've been having good conversation. We often come to to record and before getting into the topic at hand or maybe even about the topic at hand, spend some time talking about previous episodes we've done, the episode we're about to do, the episodes we want to do, and it hopefully it gets our conversational juices flowing. Yeah, this morning we, we said, let's get going. So I hit record and we recorded for half an hour when we realized we should get going. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But part of that is be, because we have listeners responding, interacting with us uh, about the topics. And we love that. I mean, that's Absolutely. been so much fun to hear from you guys. As a matter of fact, we had one of our great listeners, Josh, uh, comment that after our two ordinances episode, that we should just lean into the double meaning and have Duncan Baptist Church. There it is. <laughs> Duncan Baptist Church. You seem to have uh, some consternation about that, Josh. Yeah, I mean... You're conflicted? Yeah. It's a little... Especially repen- because he uh, was referencing... Yeah, here's the message he sent from, from Ethan Dutch, I believe is how you say his last name. He said, it's no Starbucks, but... For you coffee guys, a church name with double meaning, Duncan Baptist Church or Duncan Church, the new generation of Baptist churches. <laughs> I think, and like I responded to him, I think the only time I'm going to reject Dunking is at Dunkin' Donuts Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out, Ethan. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. thanks for reaching out, man. We appreciate it. Duncan Baptist Church. Kurt Skelly would approve. He would, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> No, but we do love hearing from you guys. Please uh, share your thoughts. It only helps us and it only helps others who are who are looking on if it's on social media. Feel free to email us though as well. Uh, any thoughts you have or, or send us a private message, whatever works best for you. We actually, after the distinctives, Josh, we've talked about having a Q&A yeah. like where we openly solicit comments where we'll read them live on the podcast. And, and maybe give a little feedback and just see what we think. And, and, and I really would encourage that. So keep an eye out on our socials for, uh, for that announcement. If we're going to have an episode about it, we'll give you guys some time to, to send us questions that may be about the distinctives, maybe about us personally, maybe about anything related. Um, and we can respond to that on maybe a, about, on a, you know, specialty coffee or something like that. Oh, yeah. If you have any questions, Josh will take those. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, really, seriously, anything you want to talk about, any question you might have about us, uh, or or our show or our positions on things, let's talk about it. Let's, yeah. let's put it out there and get, let's go through it. Yeah, so stay tuned about that. We'll let you know when, when that episode is coming up. Um, for now, what are we talking about, Josh? Well, today we are continuing our series on the Baptist Distinctives with two offices, the two biblical offices held by people in your church, that being the pastor, elder bishop, 
terms used interchangeably, and the deacons. Let's go ahead. We have, I have a lot of scripture written down here, Clay, so let's do this. Let's go to the confessions first. I have a few quotes from a couple books, and then we'll go back to the scripture because obviously at the end of the day, what the scripture says is much more important. So the London Baptist Confession, 1689, and then the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, 1742, and really every other Baptist confession I looked at basically say the exact same thing. So we're going we're gonna to look at the London Baptist Confession. Chapter number 26, section 8, it says, A particular church, gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ, consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church so called and gathered for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world are bishops or elders and deacons. And then you go down to section nine and it says the way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy spirit unto the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church, if there be any before constituted therein. And of a deacon that he be chosen by the like suffrage and set apart by prayer and the like imposition of hands. Though that is the London Baptist Confession. H. Harvey in the book, The Church, Its Polity and Ordinances on page 69, the section Ordinary Officers says, Of these, the church, as divinely constituted, has only two classes, pastors and deacons. For in scripture, these are the only officers mentioned as ordinary. And the qualifications and duties of these only are stated in connection with the usual officers of a church. E.Y. Mullins, uh, in his book, Baptist Beliefs, on page 67, says, The offices of the church are bishops or elders and deacons. The New Testament employs the word bishop and elder to designate the same officer these terms being descriptive of functions and not of separate officials. Yeah, so Josh, what they all are referencing is what we call the twofold ministry, that there are two offices and only two. This is seems to be absolutely clear in scripture to me. I know that there are other traditions around church offices. You know, the that there are three offices in churches. Some like Presbyterians, for example, have a third office. They have two different kinds of elders. They have ruling elders and teaching elders. But that distinction is not really made in scripture. And when you look at the qualifications, and I know we'll talk about 1 Timothy 3 this morning, some, I'm sure, but but when you look at the qualifications, it only gives qualifications for two positions, right? So the elders, while, while they might have different gifting, there might be differences between different kinds. You might have elders that focus on different things because they have giftings in particular areas they're still qualified the same way and they all have the um the, the they they all have the qualification that they're apt to teach so it really does still narrow down the elder as a teacher or at least have the ability to teach interestingly enough when you look at the confessions that we reference it's either section 10 or section 11 i'm not sure which but they all say that teaching and preaching are not limited to elders or pastors, but that anyone who has that gift given to them by the Holy Spirit of teaching and preaching should use that gift in, in the church. Mm. 
I thought that was interesting. I noticed that when I was looking at this, that just because you are not, say, in an official capacity of a pastor or teacher doesn't mean you shouldn't be helping teach. Well, that and doesn't mean you can't be called into the like the office of preaching, not the office of preaching, but the function yeah. of preaching. Yeah, you can be a teaching. called preacher yeah. without being in that official capacity at your particular church. And we haven't really ever, I've never really seen that being distinguished. It's always been, if you're called to preach, then that is always tethered to a full-time like ministry yeah, position. Yeah, you, you need to go to seminary and then find a church that needs a full-time ministry person. Yeah, that's interesting. But how interesting would it be Let's just go here. How interesting would it be if a, if you're just regular everyday lay church member was like, you know, I really believe God has called me to preach. He's given me the gifts of preaching and teaching. I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to seminary and learn more about the scripture, and then I'm gonna come back and just be a help. And when the church needs me to preach and to teach, I'll be glad to fill in that role. How cool would that be? That'd be awesome. I've just never heard of anything like that. I could go for doing something like that if seminary wasn't so expensive. Yeah, well, <laughs> you could go to Bible college. Yeah, <laughs> and there are there are some less expensive op- options. You can you can take classes online now, and they're and they're less expensive. But in any case, the it we while many, more people can teach and be apt to teach, it's clear that the that elders are that's a requirement yeah. for them in first Timothy three. So there's not really, I don't see the space that some other denominations make for ruling elders who don't teach God's word because it is in the qualifications that they're apt to teach. They've got to be able and willing to teach. I agree. So let's go there, Clay. Let's go ahead and jump into what does the Bible say about these two offices? There's a couple passages that we immediately go to. You think of like Acts 20, 28, when Paul said, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. When we see there, it says, God, the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. We're looking at bishops. That's the role of a bishop. To feed the church of God, that would be the role of a pastor. Um, and so there we see even two of those potential descriptions of a pastor found right there. I don't know how many times we've referenced First Peter chapter number 5. But it talks about, he says in 1 Peter 5, 1, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Uh, and the the two main passages that we often go to when we're looking at the office of a bishop and a deacon uh, would be for the bishop, you've got 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 1 through 7, and then also Titus 1, 5 through 9. And then you've got 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, speaking about deacons. Clay, what do you think? Should we just go ahead and read through 1 Timothy 3? Sure. I think it's a good good idea. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, 
one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then picking up in verse 8, as far as deacons go, it says, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Josh, something I notice right away about these passages is there's a lot of overlap between elder and deacon. That's the first thing I notice, which is interesting to me because, because I, I, where there are differences, I don't think it's intentional to be necessarily completely different. Like, oh, this doesn't matter as much for that. Like, you know, it talks about the deacon holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. I don't think that's, that's not important for an elder too. And then I, if you, if you look at Titus one, we won't read it for sake of time today, but if you read Titus one, there's slight differences between that list and the list in first Timothy three. And so I, I can deduce something from that and maybe you would disagree or maybe others would disagree. I don't know. But it seems to me that Paul's not trying to write an exhaustive list. He's not trying to say, this is the checklist you go down. He's trying to describe the character and the general reputation of the person. You know, the, the spiritual life, the reputation, and the general character of the person who should be considered for an elder or a deacon. Would you say those then would be essentially the minimum requirements for someone who's wanting to take up the work of a bishop? That's maybe a good way of putting it. In other words, this is, this is the kind of person you're looking for. Yeah. I'm not saying that they're not requirements. So I don't get me wrong. You know, somebody listening out there is probably thinking, oh, so you're saying these are just suggestions. No, I'm not saying that. They're not suggestions. Sure. These, are, th- this is, these are important qualifications. But we also don't believe that everybody has to have always been perfect in all of these things either. Well, then if we believe that everyone had to be perfect in all of these things, no one would ever be a pastor. No one would qualify. Right. So we're not we're, this, but you generally, when you read this list, I'm sure there's Christians out there listening and you're saying, yeah, I know guys like that. You're, you're listening to this list and you're like, yeah, that, that, that really, to me in my life, that sounds like so-and-so. And, and, and that's the kind of person, if you know people like that, they do have that good reputation. They have committed their lives to Christ. They are disciples. They are faithful. They do rule their house well. They are clean in their personal life. They have integrity. Um, it, it, one of the interesting things to me about these lists is that they're almost exclusively about the person's character. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's a competency is ruling your house well and being apt to teach. You have to be able and willing to teach and you have to be good enough at running your own home that you actually can be trusted with something, which this is a biblical principle, that if you can't be trusted with something smaller, you, should, you shouldn't be given something larger. Right. That, you know, Jesus echoes, Jesus gives parables about the man who does well with, with 10 cities, the man who does well with 10 talents, the man who does, you know, will be given more. And the one who can't handle the one he has loses that. Um, and this is, that, that principle is echoed here, that you should be, you should be 
observably a good steward of what God's already given you uh, as a, as a prerequisite. And so you've, you were, you know, if you're reading this, you know, people that you think of that you're like, yeah, that this does define that person. Mm-hmm. By the same token, we've all known of people who shouldn't be leaders. You read this list and you're like, yeah, it doesn't really describe him. Right. Um, I'll give you one. I'll just give you a couple examples of this. Um, obvious, the, the obvious one that most people have heard of is when there's grave moral failure in, in the area of sexual ethics or something like that. A, a pastor or a preacher or somebody who's in ministry falls in that way. Sure. They should step down. And, and, and we should make no bones about this. They should step down. There, there's a lot of effort because there's power associated with ministry positions sometimes. There's a lot of effort to retain that power, even in the midst of grave moral failure. Scripture doesn't really allow for that. And, and it's clear that you disqualify yourself when you're involved in that. Um, another one that I just, just by reading the list that I think of um, is somebody who is, there's several of these qualifications that are regarding your interaction with your social life, yeah. how you interact with other people. It talks about being patient. It talks about being not being a brawler. It talks about not being covetous. And then later on, it starts talking about being lifted up with pride. It seems to describe a contentious, you know, an old King James word, Josh, is froward, which means nobody gets a lot. You can't get along with people. Nobody can talk to you. Nobody, you're not unapproachable. Um, you're a contentious person. You're an angry person. You're, a, you're confrontational always. That's a disqualifier too in this passage. Well, and it says there before it talks about being lifted up with pride, not a novice. It would almost indicate that without some seasoning as a pastor, there is the tendency to to be to fill this role, the office of a bishop, and if things go well, to immediately assume, look what I did. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that as well that. This person is not a novice. You, you didn't get saved yesterday, yeah. And say, bless God, I'm going to Bible college. I'm becoming a pastor. This is such an important part of discipleship that maybe we don't talk about enough. You know, one of the first things a new Christian does is want to tell all their friends about Jesus. That's a wonderful thing that should be encouraged. Absolutely. Um, what it what that doesn't mean is that just because you're zealous, that means you're ready for ministry leadership. There's a lot of Bad, there's a lot of stories in my life, people I've known, that as new believers, they start devouring the Bible. They start devouring scriptural information, especially in the age of technology. They're on the internet. They're li- watching YouTube videos. They're listening to sermons. And they just, they got it all figured out. And instead of submitting to the discipleship process of their local church, they think they should be able to tell the pastor what he should believe and think. He, they think it's their job to correct the church they're in. And they're a new Christian. This is exactly why, and, and by the way, these individuals tend to change their views really quickly and a lot. Uh, Paul talks about being carried about with winds of doctrine. This is what he's referring to. When you're a novice, he talks about the snare of the devil here. You're going to get caught up because you've, because you've not been seasoned. You've not, been, you've not spent time um, grounding yourself in good doctrine and the word of God. Well, and if you'll notice, the apostles, before they ever took ministry leadership roles, spent three years with Jesus being discipled. The apostle Paul, kind of the same story. We know that he spent some time, I think he was in Antioch before he actually launched out into his ministry position, indicating once again, for lack of better terminology, no newbies allowed. Like (laughs) 
we we need to make sure that we we're we are not like you said carried about with every wind of doctrine that we're grounded in our faith that we understand and that we have this 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 seasoning about our christianity yeah your church should be able the people you're accountable to should be able to look at you and say yeah we've seen that person be faithful and consistent and we've seen him uh, show the willingness and ability to teach. We've seen them and we've observed their personal life and they are blameless in terms, of, we know that doesn't mean sinless and so we know it means um, it means uh, having a clean reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about having a good report of them that are without. In other words, even the lost world, uh, you're, not, you're not getting taken to small claims court because you don't pay bills or you don't pay people that you owe money to. You're not getting... You know, you're not getting run around because you're not you're not doing things in the community that's bringing disrepute upon your reputation, and therefore, by being an elder of the church in that situation, being bringing disrepute onto the church and onto the name of Jesus Christ. Um, and so that's these are all important things, and mm-hmm. and so we don't diminish any of them, but we certainly realize that you can maybe obey the letter of some of these, but not be obeying the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and to realize that your whole local church is, is it's it's an important part of that accountability process to make sure that you are you are qualified, that you are the right kind of because it's not described. It's not this is not supposed to be some hey sit here and 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 tear their life apart in each of these areas. It's saying read this list, look at the kind of person that should be the leader in a yeah. church. Uh, and to your point, this this continues in verse eight. It says likewise. Yes. Must the deacons. Yes. So this is not something that you look at a, a, a person who desires to be a bishop and be like, okay, you know, make sure you're doing, make sure we see all of this true. And then someone wants to be a deacon and it's like, okay, cool. You know, let, let's let them in. It's also a, still a very, I would say, sacred role to be a deacon in a church as Absolutely. well. Based upon what we read here in the scripture. Yeah, their their qualifications are are similar, and Paul establishes that by the use of the word likewise. He's saying, you too. <laughs> yep. You too. Josh, we've talked a little bit about the, the role of elders, that their job is to shepherd the flock. Um, and Paul, uh, Peter uses the word feed the flock. Um, Acts also says that. I, if I could just point out for a second, elders in the New Testament is often, almost always used in the plural term. Elders. Elders, elders. There's a few times where it's used singularly, but usually it's a reference to something that can only apply to one elder at a time. Like for example, when you're holding an elder accountable, it says against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three, you can only accuse one elder at a time. So that's a situation where it's not talking about plural and things like that. But in general, elders, every single time he's referring to the elders in local churches, it uses the plural version of the word. There's no instruction specific to this, but I think it's worth pointing out that the biblical model is that your church does not just have one pastor or one elder. It, it has multiple elders, people who are authoritatively, they are, they are given the care and the rule of shepherding the church and they preach and proclaim authoritatively and they lead and guide the church. Now it would seem from, I've heard this argument and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, in Acts 20, when Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, I've heard it explained as there was multiple churches in Ephesus. And so there were multiple elders in the sense that, in the sense that they, they were all at their individual congregations. Now, I think it's all conjecture. 
Sure. Well, but, even even, but you'd think there'd be some example where he addresses the pastors or the elders in a local church and uses it in the singular form. And I don't really see, I don't, maybe I'm, I've missed a reference. Uh, maybe one of our listeners will call me out on that, but I've not really seen that, that happen. Like even Acts, one of the references we used, Acts 20, he says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. And it's always described that way, that, that there's not just one person over the church. There is, there's multiple I mean, and it does say that they appointed elders in every church. And he uses the plural version there in Acts. So uh, it is an interesting conversation. And I think there's maybe some space, especially for a really small church, to maybe only have one pastor. Because like, hey, maybe only, you're a church plant, you got eight people, you don't need four elders. Um, so maybe for a period of time, churches only have one. But is it is it really fair to the church or to the pastor is, as a church grows for him to, A, rule the church alone, with, with no other gifted spiritual leaders around him to A, assist him in carrying out those duties and two, to, to check him and, and for him to be accountable to for discipleship. I think it's interesting. Paul says in t- Titus 1 that he says this, he says, for this cause left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. That to me is a little more of an indication that every city should have multiple elders rather than just one leading elder, if if that makes sense. I think if yeah. I think that's a as to what you're saying about or the terminology that we all love, plurality of elders, I think that would be more of a reference to that. And I think there's there's practical application here. Not application, but benefit in having the plurality of elders because it's a really a safeguard. Yeah. It's a safeguard. Well, first Peter five, he, when he talks about him, was he, do we have any evidence that Peter at that time was the, was the lead pastor, the elder of a local church at the writing of first Peter five? I don't know the answer to that right off the top of my head. Yeah, me either. But I know that he calls himself an elder. So if he wasn't the pastor of a local church, and, and I know we're not speaking against there being a lead pastor or a lead elder, because typically you do have one guy who's like the go-to. It, there's not a single team out there that doesn't have, I mean, on a basketball court, everybody's responsible for defense. Everybody's responsible for offense, but you usually got a captain, right? You have a team captain who's, who's he's not more important. Someone you know, has to lead. Right. He's, he's leading the charge. Anything we know that he's multiple heads is a monster. Yeah. And, and usually you do have people in churches who are uniquely gifted in ways. Maybe their maybe their speaking gift is just very noticeable and the whole church recognizes it. Well, then that, then maybe probably that person should be the one doing the preaching and the teaching, you know, or at least a, a good share of it. You know, that's, so that's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. We're not de- demeaning lead pastors, senior pastors, whatever you want to call them. But what we're saying, what I'm saying is that the, the biblical model seems to indicate that there's, you know, when they get together in Acts 15, when they call the elders in Acts 20, there's always this, it, it always refers to elders in a plural sense. To me, indicating that local churches did not typically in the New Testament just have one guy ruling the church. Yeah, and I think there's room here for churches to, once again, based upon, you know, the liberty of conscience to determine what is best for their particular context. That's my take on it. I don't know that. I think if it was supposed to be 
you need to have multiple elders in your church, we would read that definitively in the scripture somewhere. Right. Well, I think that might be that might be absent in a way because there are circumstances. There are circumstances where maybe only one pastor is necessary. It's a, it's a really small church or it's a church plant or something like that. It's just very dangerous uh, as a church grows. If, if the church is of any size, and even, know, even smaller churches probably need multiple elders. If you have, depending on how many people you have. And that's a, of course, it's a judgment call for anybody that we're, we're kind of talking about discernment issues here, but, but, it, but it, it, the, the danger is how does one, how does one not Lord over God's heritage? If he's the only one making all the decisions, sure. how is he not then Lording over God's heritage? Well, he's got to be listening to somebody and those people, if they're going to be making ruling decisions, have to fill first Timothy three. And if they have to fill first Timothy three, then they're elders, right? We're, we're acknowledging them as a ruler then. And I think some people we would, and I know this was my take on it for quite a while, just being honest. Uh, the idea of elders is, is, is a little bit maybe nerve wracking for some because of the, that association with other denominational traditions and a desire to be distinctly Baptist. So they would refrain from, you know, going down that road. But in practice, they would still have essentially a plurality of elders in that there's one lead pastor, but all a bunch of other pastors on board with equal an equal say, equal authority. So you're saying you've mix. seen example you've seen examples where where the church had other pastors on staff who were treated as elders. I don't know that I have. What I'm saying is I'm sure there are 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 places, especially in our kind of denominational tradition, that function that way, but would reject maybe the terminology, the plurality of elders, because of its association with other mm. Uh, other traditions. Well, I know that we've gotten, the Baptists have gotten away from using the word elder altogether. We don't yeah, really use the term. I like the word because it's the most common used word for this office. I like the word elder because, uh, because it's used most and because, um, and because of the way it describes every, every single passage that we go to on instructions to elders outside of the qualifications, which uses the word bishop, it uses the word elder. So uh, that's, I like the, the term, but I will say Baptist history Within the last hundred years, we've got this like one pastor. We have one pastor, and then we have deacons, and we we're, we're gonna have to get to deacons and what they do here in just a second. But but they have one pastor, and then they have deacons. I don't really before that. I don't see that as being necessarily accepted or normative. It's only been in the last you know hundred years in American history where it's been oh we only have one pastor, and I've even heard that not only is the is the biblical model ignored. It's actually spoken and spoken against. You'll hear Baptist people today say, church only has one pastor. Says who? The Bible clearly doesn't clearly say that. And I've, I've even heard, and I'll quote this. I heard somebody say, there's two offices in the church, the pastor and those that help the pastor. That is not what the Bible says, you know? And so I'm not saying, again, the Bible doesn't give prescriptive, hard and fast rules on all of this. I just think we should, if we're going to depart from the biblical uh, model, we need to have a good reason why. Um, and then, because for very practical, re there's very good reasons they did what they did. And, and, and I don't see churches in the New Testament being run by one man. I don't see that. Um, even Paul's influence over the churches is, is instructive. I mean, here, here he is, often serving alongside those churches, but he wasn't running them over. And he, the local pastor wasn't running Paul over. They were working together. There was a, there was a brothership. There was a, 
Uh, even the the um, the 1689 that we just read talks about ordaining elders and deacons, and it says by the imposition of hands by the eldership. So 1689 confession alludes to a pre-existing group of people, not one person. So it's it's just a, it's an interesting conversation that I think churches need to put put some thought into, um, and definitely don't don't uh, perpetrate unbiblical ideas like oh churches should only have one pastor. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's a, and, and it's not even the biblical model in my in my uh, in my estimation as I read it. Would you say that the the Bible condemns that though? It doesn't condemn it. It doesn't condemn it. So my my thing is, if we're going to depart from the biblical model, this reminds me of our conversation about baptism for children. Uh, the biblical model, and I'll, I'll admit this, the biblical model of baptism is you you dunk them right away. Yeah. <laughs> so to all of you people who are a little bit upset at our at our previous episode where we talked about waiting for some for some people, I I am admitting that the biblical models dunk them right away. So my view is, if we're going to depart from that, it needs to be there needs to be a reason for it. There needs to be a biblical, well thought out, prayed about reason for it because the Bible doesn't prohibit a waiting period. It just, it's not the model. The model is, is, is baptism right away, right after salvation. That's the first act of obedience and baptize the new believer. So if we're going to depart from it, we need a good reason. And I would say the same thing should be true of, of the way we structure leadership in churches. If we're not going to use the biblical model exactly, we should have a really good reason for it. And it shouldn't be something, and it shouldn't be, this is what Baptists do. It shouldn't be, what Baptists do is believe the Bible. So like, it shouldn't be, this is what all the other churches are doing and it shouldn't be, oh, we only, churches should only have one pastor, you know, because I actually think that's Americanism. I think CEOs and, and captains of ships and all this stuff, like we, we're used to structures where it's the CEO and then there's a board. And essentially what the church has done is adopted that and Christianized it by saying the pastor's the CEO and the deacons are the board. That's essentially how most churches function. And that's an American corporate identity, mm-hmm. not so much a biblical one, which brings us, maybe this is a good time to transition to what it, what is it? Did you have more to say about that? Uh, I was just going to comment on the, the three terms that often get used for pastor. I read this the other day and I thought it was good. We see pastors. It's always in reference to those who lead, guide, and feed the flock or uh, how they're supposed to how they're supposed to rule. We see bishop, which is an overseer, which is what they're supposed to do. And then when we see elder, it, it usually refers to the wisdom and character of the leader, which it refers to the person, the who is supposed to do it. That's good. And really, I think all three of those things need to be evident in an individual's life to fill that particular role. That's good. Which leads us to the deacons. Now let's let's paint the classic character caricature before we move on here, Clay. You always see the deacon as the guy. The deacon in the Baptist church is the guy who shows up and he's got his cigarettes in his pocket and <laughs> he thinks he's in charge of everything. Hold on, church isn't church curmudgeon the de- the deacon, the guy on Twitter, church curmudgeon? You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> Obviously, we go back to First Timothy three to see what the qualifications are of a deacon. My take is that you go to Acts 6 to see what a deacon does. Mm-hmm. Even though in Acts 6, those guys are never officially called deacons, I think you can you can look at Acts chapter number 6 and say, okay, this really looks like what the function of a deacon should be. Yeah, it's inherent in the word deacon. Deacon, the Greek word for deacon means servant. Uh, so the roots of the office lies in the need for a group of people that care for the physical needs of the church. Um, the deacons 
do work so that the elders can devote themselves to the ministry of the word, prayer, and oversight and ruling the church. Both uh, offices are servants of the church. Yes. One is a the servant of the spiritual needs, I would say, and the other is the servant of the physical, practical needs. Yeah. one I heard one guy say it this way. They're both servants and they're both overseers in a way. And I've, as a matter of fact, in Baptist history, you, you'll see them referred to as overseer deacons, as overseers of the poor. In other words, they are taking care of the physical needs of the church. Um, and it, you see this, like you said, in Acts 6, so that, so that the elders, so, the, so that the, the pastors, if you will, can dedicate themselves to setting the vision for the church, co- preaching and proclaiming God's word, spiritual development of the, of the members and things like that. It actually refers in Acts to serving tables. Yeah. You know, in other words, there are a lot of physical things that need to be done in a church, and everybody knows that because there's always there's always a small handful that's doing all that stuff at every church. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, 30 percent of the church at the most is doing most of that work. But those are, those people are essentially the, the people responsible whose whose job it is to organize and make sure those things get done scripturally is is the deacon, uh, and you know that because that's what their name means. They're not like, I've, I've heard it said, they're like two houses of legislator who work together to govern the church. That's not what scripture teaches. Um, deacons do not carry that role in scripture. The, the elders do. The elders are that collective body that, that do that. Whether you have one, two, four, however many elders, your elders, that's their job. The deacons serve the church by assisting and taking care of essential needs so that the vision of the church can move forward so that the mission can go forward. The practical things can be taken care of. That's what the deacons are for. They may be charged with some sort of administrative oversight if it's a, if it's a need in the, in the church's life. Um, but they're, they're, they're following the, the, the guidance of the elders, ultimately. Um, they're called to submit to the leadership of the elders just like every, every other church member. So one title you'll hear is evangelists, which that as an office doesn't exist in scripture. It is a gift. Yeah, it is a gift. It's, a, it's listed in Ephesians 4 as a gift, which my understanding of that scripture is that the gift is of spreading the gospel, of proclaiming yeah. God's word. And that's a good thing. If, you're, if you have the gift of evangelism, uh, that's a good thing. But it's not an office in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, missionary is another one. We, we give that title to people, uh, which I have no problem with any of these titles necessarily, I, I, some of them. And I mean, you, you basically but, see their function in the New Testament anyways. Don't you but think- But you don't it, really see- a dedicated office. No, but don't you think that those, the missionaries that we see in the New Testament are actually elders? They're sent elders, essentially. Because their hands are laid on them and they're prayed over. Yeah, basically. And they're basically sent as elders. So they're accountable to the local church they're sent from. And then they're, they're, they're sent out. But, they're, but they're, until the, maybe they go stab, establish a church and then at some point that church takes over their accountability. That church takes over, you know, becomes their new home. But in the meantime, they're accountable to their church. The interesting thing would be, do you, do you hear a lot about missionaries being held accountable to 1 Timothy 3? That's a really good question. You know, so if we're going to... I'm not, honestly, I've never really been too involved in the process of actually sending out a missionary. Yeah. So I, I, I can't, can't really speak to right. that process. Yeah, me either. I don't, I don't know what mission boards do. Um, and that would The be same as with an evangelist. I've never really been around Same. a church that has commissioned an evangelist. Yeah. Do we just, do we just take a, a pastor's recommendation and say, fine, let's take them on for support or, Hey, let's do this. Cause this pastor recommends them. Well, I don't know. Is, is he, is he filling for Timothy three? I think it would be, be wise and extremely advantageous, especially with the evangelist 
to make sure they're fulfilling those qualifications. Yeah, because if evangelists and missionaries, if we're not making sure of that, then then what are they? They're nothing. They're not. They're not in a, in any official capacity in the church. So I I I, I guess I'm going to say if we have additional titles that aren't scriptural, that's okay. So long as we are somehow there's some accountability scripturally for for what for what their role is. What in what way do they serve the church? And if it's in a role that's authoritative, which a missionary is, a missionary essentially becomes a pastor in a new place. Yeah. Uh, an evangelist, the modern evangelist is is sort of its own thing because of the way it functions in modern America. But but still shouldn't they have some sort of accountability to one specific church who actually holds them accountable and and qualifies them by first Timothy three. And that may very well be happening. I think a lot of times it is. Yeah. I, I do think a lot of times that is, that they would be considered disqualified if they didn't follow 1 Timothy 3. I'm just saying it's important that, they, that we do. It's not enough that you want to preach or that you went to Bible school. Like, are you, and, and then the question I have is, is the church actually treating them as a sent elder and holding them accountable in that fashion? That's and, interesting to me because if you're just traveling, if you're doing a lot of traveling, it does matter that you are accountable to your local church. Yeah. Because arguably there's a degree of autonomy there that most church members don't have. Sure. So it, it, there's a little bit of a higher bar for behavior, maybe not behavior, but a higher bar for accountability because you have to, you have to, you have to intentionally do that. It's not going to happen by accident when you're doing a lot of traveling. I just think that we need to make the dis, the distinction here, and this is just my opinion, between the office of something, you know, missionary evangelist, and the gift. Yes, that's I mean, true. Because the office, like we've been saying, it doesn't exist. Well, I, I can tell you this: there is a lot of titles, the archbishop of this and that, that, that stuff's not biblical. There's no, there's no office for archbishops. What about assistant pastors? I mean, I, I don't have a problem with a church having assistant pastors, but where do they fit into the biblical? I mean, that's essentially what I am. Right. You're an church. associate here at, yeah. at, at fellowship. Um, wh what role do those people fill scripturally in an office? My role would be assistant to the regional pastor. Assistant to the regional pastor. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth, Josh. Yeah, and so I I do think that churches can have assistant pastors, and essentially, I think a lot of churches function with them as essentially assistants to the pastor. I do think a lot of churches function that way. And I've seen some churches make the distinction in their verbiage. Instead of just saying the assistant pastor, they say assistant to the pastor. I have seen that. I also know of churches that make them elders. In other words, they are considered as equal in authority and rule to the pastor. They serve. And their role is to, to uh, get guidance from this, the lead pastor, but they have authority and, and ability to speak equally into situations. So uh, I've, the, the term that Nine Marks uses is that they have their pastors. Anybody on the pastoral team is all elders. Their lead pastor, senior pastor, whatever, they, they don't call it that. I think they call it lead pastor, is considered first among equals. So he is the, he, he is the primary, the captain of the team, if you will. But but all of them are have parity, mm. uh, which is an, which is an interesting thing, and that that's that's noticeably different from what some other churches are doing when they make an assistant pastor. They're just making them basically the staff of the pastor. The pastor has a staff that's answerable only to him, but they don't actually have authority. They don't actually have official authority over the church, and um, and their authority is delegated authority from the pastor, which is fine. I don't know that there's any is, like, right, biblical is, objection to that. I I I, I there's. The one thing I would say is, is if the church hasn't elected them, that's a problem. So you should for sure should have a mechanism where the church, A, 
qualifies them by first, first Timothy three and two elects them where, where you come into an issue is if the church has elected them, are they elders or deacons or are they just something else? So we've, we've created sort of a third office sometimes with that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with having assistance to the pastor, but if they don't have, if they're not an elder or a deacon, then they don't have, they don't have biblically given authority over the church unless the church has made him an elder. And if he's, they've made him an elder, do you see what I'm saying? There's this yeah, weird, I just, I don't know where they fit. Do they fit in as an elder or do they fit in as a not elder, but, I think it would, but they just, have delegated authority from the elder. I, so it's, it's, they would just be staff is how I would look at yeah, it. Yeah. There's, there's, there's some gray area there. And I'm not, I'm not talking about this to say that there's, you're, somebody's doing it wrong and they should change. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying any of that. It just is interesting to me as a, as a matter of church polity. Like, how do you, how do you set that up? Um, well, I think the way most would explain it is the pastor's the elder, the deacons are the deacons. And then any assistant pastor in title is just paid staff of the pastor. And yeah. so I don't, I think if you look at it that way, you don't necessarily have to make them an elder or a deacon. So most Baptist churches, you would agree that we've been around, or I think, I think I know this is for sure, sure true of me. I don't know if it's true of you. Most Baptist churches do not have a plurality of elders. They have one elder and then they have a deacon. They have deacons and then they have staff. And yeah, I and would the, say so for the, the most part. The two things, and, I, and I'm just going to throw this out there. Uh, you, people can take it or leave it. The, the, two, the two weird spots I feel that Baptist churches in the modern, that I've been a part of or been around in the modern era get into is because the pastor then doesn't have anybody on his level, so to speak. He doesn't have other elders. They end up treating the deacons as elders. Because then at least the pastor has somebody he's answerable to that's elected by the church. We don't have other elders, so we're just going to make the, we're just going to treat the deacons as a decision-making ruling board. Scripturally, that's that's not the way that's not the it's not the same role, but we kind of just bleed them together. Um, and then the other thing that happens is the in some churches the deacons have had so much power for so much time doing that because the deacons have taken that role of of rulership, they have started to control the pastor. Now I have seen that. And then over time, the pastor is cycling out every couple of years because he can't, he can't exercise his gifts. He can't lead because the deacons control him. I know of a church in my home state that, and then, but then what, but then what ends up position? Yeah. But then what ends up happening there is, is, uh, there's always that, that tension between the, the deacons and the pastor and there's not other elders to help the pastor. It's just him. It's just him against the board of directors, if you will. And then some churches, as a rejection of that method, don't want to have deacons. Now, I've never seen anything like that before. I've seen an, a, I've seen a, a certain handful of churches that have no deacons and they don't want deacons because they're scared of deacons. Only reason you're scared of deacons is because you've been in churches that didn't have enough elders. So the pastor, in order to be held accountable, the deacons held them accountable. So the deacons went above the biblical role to hold the cat pastor accountable. And then the deacons ended up being this contrary power to the pastor. There were no other elders. So it's like, so then some churches like, okay, well fine. Then we just don't, we're not gonna have a deacon board because we don't want deacons running the church and running the pastor off or controlling the pastor. That that's where you get into, this is where, this is why I'm, I, when I look at the scripture, I really like the model of elders and deacons, plural, plural, where possible, because it kind of helps mitigate some of this. And that's why I say that we've adopted the American corporate model. We've got CEO, board of directors. That's what we've, we basically have turned the pastor and the deacons into that instead of using the scriptural model. It's just an interesting conversation. And like I said, like we've said a couple of times here, we're not saying any of this to say, if you're out here doing it this way, you need to stop it because you're not right with God. You're disobeying scripture. I'm not saying that. I know Josh is not saying that. 
we're just talking about it. We're just having the conversation because it's interesting and because and because it does affect our church life. It's something that churches should think about, not just reflexively do what was done in the last 50 to 100 years in America. We should say, what is the scripture scriptural model? We, we, we definitely agree if you're a Baptist and you believe in congregationalism, you believe both of these, these, um, these offices are confirmed by the body. They're confirmed by the church. Um, those selections are made that way. And how, how those people are identified as candidates or nominated or whatever, that's, that's not spelled out exactly. Maybe, maybe your current pastor points out to the church, hey, this is who I think would be a good candidate. But if you believe in congregational authority, you believe that ultimately there's this, the laying on of hands, the commissioning, the confession of 89 says by the suffrage of the, of the, of the, of the church, which is the vote uh, of the church. So we agree on that. The question is how exactly should you structure it and what can you do to, to maintain as close to the biblical model as possible? Because I believe there's reasons for the reason, the way acts, the way they did things in the Bible. Yeah. I'm just kind of pondering on, on what you said originally about staff, how it, it, for you, it's a little confusing, like what is their position and role? Um, I don't really see as much, if I could clarify, I don't, it's not confusing to me what their role or position is. It's, it's confusing to me how to make them fit into the biblical, where are they, are they just account, held accountable by the pastor or are they held accountable by the church? I think the answer is yes. Because the church as as a body. So let's take my position, for instance, okay. because I'm not an elder. I'm a, I'm a staff member. The church as a body voted and elected me to come and do the role that I and perform the functions I do here. But I'm not an elder in the sense of overseer, leader, authority position. So I don't, I think it's not, my office isn't necessarily that one of a biblical position, so to speak, but one of like, there's liberty for you to do that. And because here's what I was going to say, if we're going to, I think what we have to be careful is when we, we look at this, we don't want to be, and this is something I have to do because I'm very analytical. That's something me and you have in common. Yeah, we sure we like to, we like to analyze <laughs> things very deeply. I think we have to be super careful with this because what I have the tendency to do is to look at it and be like, well, and overanalyze it. Right. And so if a staff member takes a staff position and we're like, this doesn't fit the two offices, well, then, then we have to carry that on to the rest of the staff. Right. Yeah, I don't so, like. How does the? How I don't does, think that if the, a church has a staff secretary, what <laughs> office does that person? She's hold? a deacon. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> you know, we just have to. And I'm not saying you're doing that. No, I, saying, I. What you're what you're saying is important. It's what good, I'm saying is I'm overanalyzing your analysis. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the more important, a, a very these things are important to 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 study. But I think I do think you're right that it's not necessary that's because somebody's paid staff of a church that they have to fit the two offices. And to have somebody who doesn't fit the two offices is not a, a neglect or a, an abandonment of the two office structure. It's not. Well, and you'll see some and, and churches. I, and I want to be clear about that. If you're doing one of these models, we, we do one of these models uh, here at Fellowship. Like we're not, I'm not sitting here criticizing anybody doing, a lot of the reasons church do things, it's because it's what's been, do, been done there for a long time. They have constitution and bylaws that set it up that way. So I'm just saying, let's be thoughtful about it. And, and the, the one thing I will say is that I think there's probably a lot of church staff who are pastors, who are associate pastors, who probably essentially do function like elders, whether or not they've been elected as an elder or as, a, uh, as, a, as an overseer, they do function that way. And so that's where I say, 
if they're qualified enough to lead the church spiritually in the pastor's absence, the church already probably functions like they're an elder, even if they officially don't have that, that authority. And so I'm saying that I, I want Baptist churches to approach these kind of things thoughtfully. You know, let's, let's put some thought into this, into the way we're doing it and why we're doing it that way. So that A, the pastor doesn't get, get tore up because, you know, as the church grows and as things get complicated in churches, he can get so burnt out so easily. Uh, the other thing is accountability for, his, for him and his discipleship. It's important for, for pastors to be hearing honest, unfiltered thought from godly people who love him. And a really great way to do that is to give him people in the church who can speak to him honestly. And sometimes I think if you only have deacons, a deacon board who maybe in the past has struggled with the pastor relationship, and then you just have the staff, maybe the staff doesn't feel like they're that person. I would hope that the pastor has those relationships in church uh, because the scriptural model is that discipleship requires that kind of vulnerability. It requires honesty. It requires openness. But the danger is if we don't, I, I believe the biblical model gives us a structure that provides it. And so that being the case, you know, my, my encouragement is just be thoughtful about how you're doing it and stay as close, close to the scriptural model as we can, unless, like we've said before, unless you have a specific reason for doing it differently. Because I do think the Bible, as we've said before, the Bible doesn't prohibit some of the things you see. Just because it's not the biblical model doesn't mean it's prohibited. And we have to be careful about impugning pe people who do it differently in an area that the Bible doesn't specifically address. Well, and I think too, some churches may not say that they do it according to multiple elders, multiple deacons, but functionally they do. Yeah, that's true. And so you see, we that's another thing we have to watch is, you know, okay, this church over here may reject the terminology plurality of elders, but in practice they are, they they technically they have the plurality of elders. I've seen this. Yeah. Where, where they kind of officially on paper, they have the same structure as modern independent Baptist or Southern Baptist churches where it's one pastor, it's a deacon board, it's all this. But when you go there, there's a team of spiritual leaders yeah. that are teaching and preaching and holding one another accountable. Like they, they have all that biblical structure built into the way they actually function, regardless of what you see on paper. Well, as we wrap it up here, I wanted to bring us back to Ephesians chapter number four. I intentionally left it out when we went through scripture because Clay, when I think about the office of the pastor, the, the deacons, really anything that has to do with a gift of the church, I always think about Ephesians chapter number four. And here's what it says. It says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? And this is what we have to remember. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. At the end of the day, Clay, this is, this is why 
God gave gifts like this to the church for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. A pastor does not exist for his own advancement. Mm. Deacons do not exist to build their own kingdom. Mm. We come together in these offices for the saints. Yeah, Josh, that's For the body of Christ. And I love what Paul says here. I think it's down here in verse 15. It says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together. What's he saying? This whole thing, it all goes back to being joined together, to being to grow up into the head of the church, which is Christ, which means if you're a pastor, you're part of the body. Mm. If you're a deacon, you're part of the body. If you're a lay church member, you're part of the body. Yes. That there is no one exempted from being a part of the body of Christ and that God gives us these gifts to help and edify one another. Yeah, that's great. What, what it says in verse, you read verse 13. Till we all come in unity, in the unity. This is, this is the goal of the, of, the, of the church. To be in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure. I mean, think, what is this? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Yeah. That's the potential. That we can be such a good representation of who Jesus is. What you're saying, and when we read these passages about elder, elders or pastors and deacons, I can't help but but reflect on Ephesians 4, as you just read, and and think, you know, the danger of all these conversations is that they become about who's in charge. I don't think that's been the tenor of our conversation. That's not what we're really focused on is who's in charge. The Bible does certainly give the charge of the church to certain people. But the way it describes these the kinds of people who should be leading churches, it's, it should be the kinds of people who are not actually seeking their own power. A servant among servants. Yeah, the, what is the new, over and over again, Paul teaches to esteem others better than yourself, to, to lift others up, to, to let he that is the most lightly esteemed, let him be the judge. Uh, for, so there's the leadership in churches is supposed to exemplify that servanthood. I, I heard somebody joking recently, they said, God said, hey, you should be, I came not to minister, but I came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give my life and to be a servant and to uh, ransom for many. And he says, you should be, and he teaches servanthood. And somebody says, okay, servant leadership. And he said, no, just servant. Okay, servant leadership. Let's get this conference going. (laughs) Yeah. Because there is that tendency to just focus on who gets to decide who's in charge. And that's a fleshly impulse in a church for me to approach my office or my, my role in a church and say, how can I accumulate power? How can I accumulate influence? How can I get really what that boils down to is how can I get my way? Mm-hmm. What, can, what, what can I get away with? What can I do? How can I flex my muscle? Those are, those are fleshly impulses and they're antithetical to what sacredly following the role in our, our role in the churches. And it doesn't matter what your role is. If you're a lay person, you can, you can have the same attitude as a lay person, have that fleshly power grabbing, influence grabbing, me focused attitude. No, what we should all come here thinking is how can I edify this church? How can I edify others? How can I, how can we grow in Christ? How can I serve? If we all bring that attitude from, from the senior lead pastor to the brand new member, you're going to have a healthy church. Well, and think about what it does to a pastor who realizes, A, I'm, I'm 
equally as much a part of the body of Christ as anyone else that comes to church. And B, my responsibility is to edify the church or build the church up. Wow. Yeah. That changes the way that you view what it is that you do. Yeah, absolutely. Which that being said, Clay, I think something that I would encourage not just ministry leaders and pastors and deacons, but literally anyone who goes to church at all to pick up a copy of the book, Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. Yes. Uh, just be warned, you'll probably be able to read a chapter and then you'll have to put it down and just, you know, weep and mourn and lament <laughs> certain days. Oh, you, you, you will, you will be under conviction. I don't care who you are. Yeah. Reading that book. Trip is a, he don't play. And it really helps you. It helps you as a pastor to remember, dude, you're part of the body of Christ. You're not above the body of Christ. And it helps you as a lay person to realize, how can I help my pastor? How can I ensure that my pastor is being incorporated into the body? Because I think what we unintentionally do sometimes, Clay, is we see our pastor up on the stage and he's preaching and we like intentionally swipe him outside of the body. Yeah, put him on a pedestal. And, or, and like yeah. unintentionally make him almost Jesus. And that's frightening, dangerous, and it literally could lead to the destruction of your pastor. So the loving thing to do for our pastor is to say, hey, we're going to bring you in together with the body to make sure you are receiving uh, the, the, the function of the body. Something I appreciate that our pastor has done in this way is, and we've had some schedule changes here recently, so I know it's been a little bit hectic for him, but he has made himself a part of a small group not the leader of a small group, yep. but a member of the small group. Yep. And what he's told me, and I'm sure he's probably told you, and I know he's told others, is he does that because he needs, he needs encouragement. He needs the word. He, he needs, needs discipleship. The, yep. the function of the body in his own life. Hey, that's a great transition, Josh, to this. We got Jared Wilson next episode. We do. Man, I'm so excited for this interview with Jared. We're going to talk about this topic. We're not going to talk about two offices necessarily. We're going to drill down because he focuses on pastoral ministry. So you, the pastors who are listening, and I, I'm, I say that the lay people who listen, you want to listen to this episode as well, because we're going to talk to Jared about ministry. And we're going to talk to him about how churches and their relationships with their pastors can be better, how we can just insert some charity and some love and some grace of God into this, into our church relationships so that ministry leaders are healthy, so that lay people are healthy, so that they know how to minister to their pastors, so that pastors know how to minister to one another and to their churches. And uh, we're just, we're excited about this. Yeah, Jared's been there, done that. He probably even has a t-shirt and we're excited. To <laughs> or have a couple of t-shirts. Yeah, we're excited to have him on and, and to get his insight on that. I'm gonna be honest with you, Clay. I'm gonna ask him the questions and then I'm just gonna sit here <laughs> and listen, because man, that guy, I, I, I can't even, we know what we're going to ask him. Like we've already know the questions that we've sent to him. I'm just, I'm, in, I'm just bracing for this flood of information. It's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. And I know that our listeners are going to be blessed by it as well. Absolutely. Well, Clay, what do you think, man? I think the only boards in the Bible were the ones that Paul floated on. <laughs> Uh, there it is. There Thank it is. you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Young Baptist Pod. 
and check out our website at theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you consume the content and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening and we hope you'll join us next time on the Young Baptist Podcast. Podcast.